Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Down Men with Jim and Jay, where we chat about history, culture, health, politics, religion, sex, sports, with a dash of Gen X pop culture thrown in, and try to understand why men are breaking down and what can be done about it. How are you this week, Jim? I noticed right off the bat that you're wearing a a hat for the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't aware that you were an Atlanta Braves fan. Yeah, it's true. It's happened. It took a long time for me to be able to wear something like this. But having grown up in Cincinnati and rooted for the Reds for so long, it's just been too painful to not live in Cincinnati and have to watch the complete abandonment and destruction of a professional sports team in the ways that sure yeah the owners of the Cincinnati Reds have have done so over the years and so yes. i just it's just too hard to be a thousand miles away from Cincinnati and root for such a tarnished team um, they'll always be my first love. I right, you right, know, sure. fell asleep to them, listening to them on the radio and yeah. went to as many games as I could growing up and watched them on TV. And them winning the World Series in 1990 is one of my biggest childhood memories. Like They'll always be my first and greatest love in baseball, but I just can't root for the modern day Cincinnati Reds. So I am I'm embracing my home state team now. Sure. The yeah. Atlanta Braves. I resisted right. it for... 26 years but it's it's finally time i mean it's just happened this week but it's it's, it's big time. news breaking news i have resisted being a braves fan i continue to resist it and will resist it i want to say until the day i die but i i find that wow. i i'm a never say never kind of guy because so many of the things that i swore i would never do i have ultimately ended up doing so yeah. you live long enough and it's like you eventually yes. betray everything you've ever stood for. So right. I'm sure eventually I'll become a Braves fan as well. I, I can I can understand you're you're making that decision. Yeah. Certainly you can't cont- no reasonable person can possibly continue to be a Reds fan. Yeah. I mean, if I lived still lived in the Cincinnati area, I just would probably stick with the Reds because why not? They're the hometown team and that's but being far away, it's it's hard to continue to stay with the team in a long distance, even with all the tools we have from a technology standpoint to follow a team now, when they just continuously make bad decisions, don't spend the money necessary to keep a competitive team on the field, trade away their good players. And, you know, it's been too much for too long. So I had to, I had to let them go. It was a breakup. Yeah. Breakups are always tough. So I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Well, we should go ahead and uh, jump into our first segment of the show this week which is a segment that we call I'll have what she's having, which is basically just a chance for us to mention something that we have learned recently from a woman or from women in our lives or in a book or on the internet or on TV or wherever we may have uh, learned something. And uh, we, we want to say like, yeah, I'm, I'm I want to have what that woman's having. She's uh, got some insight, some ideas, something that I want to embrace for myself. So I'll have what she's having. Yeah, this is one of my favorite segments. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, I guess I'll dive into this first. The thing that came to my mind for this segment for this week is I just was 
lucky enough last night to go to a concert here in Atlanta of the Indigo Girls. And as I was listening to that concert, the person I was with, my friend, was asking me how many times I had seen the Indigo Girls live. And I realized that I have seen them maybe five or six times over the course of my life. Um, The first time being when we were students at Emory University in the 90s. And then I've just seen them at various times over the years. I really have a lot of love and respect for them as musicians and as human beings. I've gotten to, you know, meet them a couple of times and they sort of run in some of the similar circles that I've been in here in Atlanta. So I just was thinking last night that they really have had an impact on me from even before I came to Emory I was a fan of theirs and in the kind of world that I was living in at that time, they were huge and well-respected and people loved their songs and played them. And, you know, for me, it was like U2, R.E.M. and the Indigo Girls were like at the same level to me in terms of amazing artists that I loved, even though if you look at, you know, album sales, <laughs> I don't think they're really on the same level with with those other two bands. Yeah. Their song, Closer to Fine, is was one of the first songs I ever played. Learned to play on the guitar in, as a teenager. I think it was All I Want Is You by U2 was the first song I learned, and then Free Fallen by Tom Petty, and then Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls. So, and I was just thinking specifically about There's a line from that song, Closer to Fine, where they say, there's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line. The less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in that, that I took me a long time to learn that there's more than one answer to things in life, to possibilities for what we can be, for to religion, to politics and that the less time and energy I spend trying to figure out something definitive about the world that I can hang on to and just accept that there's more than one answer. There's more than one way to do it. The more that I can like just enjoy my life and feel like I'm, I'm able to be my best self if I'm not so hung up on trying to find the right answer for everything. That wisdom took me, you know, 20 years, 25 years (laughs) from the time that I first heard it to actually be like, oh yeah, I think, I think they were right about that. That, that does seem like good advice. So I'm, I just want to uh, learn to be a little bit more like the Indigo Girls, both in terms of their wisdom and songwriting and musicianship, but just also being good human beings who have spoken up for justice and peace and love time and time again in the local community here and all over the country and all over the world. So they are women that I want to emulate the best that I can. I feel like the Indigo Girls are like celebrities that I feel like I could be friends with them. Yeah, yeah. I always think like, I feel like me and the Indigo Girls would get along. Um, <laughs> I, but I that's think you would, true. yeah. Yeah, I saw, actually saw them in person too last year. Oh, all right. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Like, yeah. just we got like really good seats right, right up front to see them, and it was a very powerful performance. And I mean, I was, I was like, I got teary during several of the songs because I was just like, really felt a lot of 
compassionate and kind energy coming from them out into yeah, the audience. Yeah. It was a really good, it was an enthusiastic audience for, for their performance. And I think they could feel that. And they were sort of reflecting that back to us. And it just felt like this giant hug that we were all kind of giving each other. And it was very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I felt the same. I mean, I was crying throughout the concert. This music has been around part of my life for a long time. And I was just thinking back on my life and the different eras where I've listened to their music or different albums at different times. And so it was, it was a pretty deep experience, but yeah, I I think they're just genuinely good people. I know people who know them personally and they, from all reports are just good, good hearted folks. We think we would be friends with them, but I think everyone thinks they'd be friends with them and that's why they are successful because millions of people out there are like, Oh yeah, then your girls are great. I want to like hang out with them and be their friend. Yeah. That's called, being a successful musician. (laughs) Yeah. I was watching the documentary of the Lilith fair festival from back in the Mm. nineties. And Sarah McLaughlin was the main sort of organizer behind that. But apparently the Indigo girls were like, they were the glue. And so a couple of different artists were both like, it all changed when the Indigo Girls got here. Nice. They were like, hey, let's go hang out. And so instead of this collection of musical artists that Sarah McLaughlin had put together to perform, it sort of became more collaborative. Right, right. Then they started singing each other's songs or inviting each other on stage to do more duets and things. And it was really cool. And again, like led to the feeling of like, yeah, it would just be cool to hang out with them. And they would be, <laughs> and they would be cool with that. You know? Right, right. So. Yeah, they would be cool. All right. Well, what do you uh, want to share for I'll Have What She's Having? Yeah, I went a little further back in history than just when we were in college. And <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in my neck of the woods in the Savannah, Georgia area, there's been a lot of talk about the city squares are named for different people. We have 23 squares like in downtown savannah you're talking about yeah in the downtown area there are these little parks and they're they're called squares and they're sort of these little neighborhoods that are around each square and they're named for different people or things that are important to savannah and right one of them was named for john c calhoun who was just really a catastrophically awful human being in the promotion and support and development of the institution of slavery and white supremacy in the South in the 1800s. And one of the squares was named after him. He was a senator and vice president. And at the time when the white racists were in charge of Savannah, I'm sure it made sense to name a square after him. But in the 2020s, when It's a majority black city with an all black city council and mayor. And we no longer want to promote those who are fervently in favor of slavery as a good thing, not just like a necessary evil, but he was like, slavery is good for black people as well as white people like that. Yeah. Yeah. Really his position. Like I'm not exaggerating. And he was vice president of the United States is what you meant when you said that's right. Like he was a. A significant historical figure. Yes. But and, but a good, but from Savannah, right? I mean, he was like a... No, he was from South Carolina, which is like, I'm like, if we're going to pick a raving racist to name a statue or a, a square after, at least it should be somebody from Georgia Somebody from Savannah. the hometown, like, yeah. Yeah. So lots of reasons that didn't make sense. His name has now finally been removed and we have to name the square 
for someone or something else. It doesn't have to be a person. Right, right. But the the consensus among those who worked to have his name removed is to have uh, the square named for a woman named Susie King Kaler, who unfortunately, I'm quite certain most people listening to this have never heard of. And she yeah, is just an name, amazing yeah. historical figure from the uh, Civil War and then into the Reconstruction era of the history of the United States. She was born in 1848. She was born into slavery near Savannah, and she became free at the age of 14 during the Civil War when her uncle led her out to a Union gunboat in the Savannah River. And at age 14, she joined the Union Army. It was called the 1st South Carolina Volunteers. It was the first black regiment in the U.S. Army. And she was on the front line supporting those black troops as they were involved in a number of different skirmishes and battles in that area of the Civil War. Whoa. Most importantly, and what one of the things she is most known for, she started teaching all of the uh, black soldiers and a few of the other, there were other women who were also helping, taught, teaching them all how to read because she had learned to read secretly when she was a young child. Another another black woman had taught her how to read, and which was illegal at the time. Right, so she, right. Had, she had secretly learned how to read. And so another amazing thing that she did during that time was teach all of these men and some of the other women that were there to to read. And after the war, uh, the next amazing thing she did was she started a school for the education of newly freed slaves who, you know, were were now in need of services like education. And she, she opened a private school specifically for the education of those kids. She continued to work as an educator in that area. And then eventually she ended up moving to Boston and worked in it with a group called the Women's Relief Corps, which was a national organization for female civil, civil war veterans. We tend to think of most of the participants in the Civil War as men, which most of them were, obviously, but there were actually significant numbers of women that uh, participated in the in the war sure, effort, sure. and in some cases, even you know, uh, women of African descent like her. So, just truly an amazing woman as an educator, as a civil rights advocate, as an advocate for veterans' care, and yeah. really. Through a variety of tragedies, she just demonstrates courage time and time and time again. And it has just been inspiring for me to learn more about her as I've participated in different events here locally, trying to promote her as the type of person that we want a square to be named after. And uh, just seeing her resiliency and courage has really given me a lot of inspiration as I'm sort of in a place in my life where I'm like in a, in a career transition and in relationship transitions and like transitioning from living in a place I lived for over 20 years to a place I never lived before. And so like, I'm sort of going through a lot of different transitions and in some ways, if I'm being honest, drawing strength from her example to, you know, be courageous and resilient and, you know, move forward trying to do the right thing. And just just an amazing woman that again, I'm I never knew about until I, I moved here and got involved with this. And I'm certain that uh, other folks have not heard about her as well. But uh, she yeah. she deserves 
books and TV shows and movies about her life because it's really inspirational. So yeah, definitely like get your, get your Google out and learn a little bit about Susie King Taylor because she is, yeah. a, was an amazing woman. Definitely. It sounds like it. Susie King Taylor. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, that's the thing about naming a square for someone is you have the opportunity to invite people into finding out about somebody who's worth learning about, as opposed to like, how many more squares do we name need named after George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? Right. We all know about them. Yeah. If people come here and they're like, Susie King Taylor Square, I've never even heard of the her. Who's then they're that? like, yeah, learn something. That's like, <laughs> you right. should know about her. She's right. awesome. So yeah, I think that's, that's exciting. And glad that uh, those changes are happening in a very small way in Savannah. One, one down, 23 to go. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it would be the first square in Savannah named for an African-American. It would be the first square in Savannah named for a woman. And so just that alone is enough for me to do it. But I mean, she truly is remarkable. Well, we should probably go ahead and move into the uh, main topic of our conversation today. Before we dive into this conversation, we should probably just give a little bit of a trigger warning that we are going to be discussing some topics that might be hard for people to listen to. So just be aware, you know, we always have an explicit warning on our episodes, but in this particular case, we're going to get into some conversations about violence and sexual violence and sexual assault and some other things that have to do with power dynamics between men and women. So just be aware of that in your choosing to listen to this conversation. So, yeah, with this segment, I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that men are scarier, I think, than a lot of men realize. And, you know, what sort of got me thinking about that was uh, just continued violence that's happening in our country. Uh, And in this case, the ones that were catching my attention were all perpetrated by men. And there was just sort of a rash of shootings Uh, I'm certainly not making the argument that all men are out there running around shooting people because they're not. Although having said that, (laughs) the vast majority (laughs) of shootings are perpetrated by men. 90% of the homicides in the world are committed by men. We sort of know instinctively that men are the ones that are committing the most violence. And the conversations that I've been having with men and women over the past couple of weeks as I've been exploring this topic it has really struck me how many women take it for granted that they need to be on guard about what men might do to them. And how many men, particularly white men, are, let's just say, blissfully unaware of the ways in which they are unwittingly projecting fear onto some of the women around them. Sure. I think there is a fear factor out there that is very real that that women are living with on a daily basis that so many men are just not aware of. And so we just wanted to have a conversation about that to bring awareness to that fact, talk about our own experience with that as men and and the women that we're around. Another quote that often comes up when discussions like this are being held is from Margaret Atwood, the famous author of uh, Handmaid's Tale, who has said, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men are going to kill them. It turns out she didn't quite say it that succinctly, but that is essentially what she was saying in in one of her works. And so it sort of gets condensed into that. 
most men most of the time are not experiencing that level of fear as they go about their business during the day. When they're going to the gym, get a workout in, most men are not like, oh shit, what's going to happen to me? Who's going to come up and bother me? Or who do I have to be on the lookout for? Whereas with a lot of women who are going to the gym to get a workout in, that is absolutely a part of what they are experiencing when they do that. As I've been talking to folks recently, uh, I have realized that that is not something that men in particular are aware of maybe in ways that uh, we could be or should be. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that's right. I think it really is one of those things that where people just have completely different perceptions of the world based on their experience. And most men are not, are, are able to be unaware of the experience of of others and of women in particular when it comes to that, those feelings of fear. And I think it is reasonable for women on the whole to be afraid of men on the whole. That is a reasonable fear that is based on evidence and experience. And so I think, yeah, it's important for men to understand that that is the situation. And even though individual men may feel like, I would never harm a woman or I wouldn't be a threat or I'm not going to be violent. Understanding that that you are going to be looked at in that way, nonetheless, is important in terms of how you sort of walk through the world. The quote that you mentioned from Margaret Atwood, my association with that is my experience of meeting women on like a dating app and then going on a first date with them. Yeah. And realizing when we go on the first date, I'm in, I'm thinking about like, are we going to connect? Are we going to have things in common? Are we going to have a good conversation? Is she going to think I'm handsome? She's thinking about, is this guy going to murder me? I mean, that's that that is the the first hurdle that has to be crossed. Yeah. Am I safe? Am I safe with this guy? Yeah. And I mean, because the, the truth is like, again, that's a reasonable fear. We don't know each other in real life and we don't maybe don't even know anybody who knows the other person. We're complete strangers. We've just been like chit chatting online for a few weeks and now we're going to meet in person for the first time. And it's reasonable for women to go into that with a, a healthy amount of fear. Yeah. And so for me, realizing that, you know, is like I can take steps to try to minimize that fear or to try to put her at ease because I'm aware that that's how she may be feeling. Whereas if I'm just completely oblivious to it, then I'm not able to to sort of help to put those fears to rest. Yeah, one in three women will be the victim of a completed or attempted rape at some point in their lifetime. 80% of women report experiencing some form of sexual harassment. And so again, to your point that that's a reasonable fear, it is like, that is 100% based in reality. And that's just about, you know, sexual assault and sexual harassment. That's not taking into account other forms of physical abuse and violence that happen towards women. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is a, there is an epidemic of violence perpetrated by men against other men and women as well. Men are perpetrating violence at epidemic level rates and in a global context, particularly bad in the United States. There is something going on in our culture that promotes men being overly aggressive, overly assertive, overly violent, overly intimidating in ways that we don't necessarily see in other cultures across the globe. Yeah. The connection there from from my perspective is is with the term that you often hear is rape culture. There 
can be different understandings of what that refers to, but I think what it it reflects is that rape is a very common occurrence for women in the United States, common enough that it has pervaded our entire culture and it affects every interaction between men and women. And in any kind of romantic or uh, relational context, there is a legitimate fear and and a legitimate physical sexual threat from men, particularly in a heterosexual context. And that pervades all aspects of, all, of our culture, as well as the experiences of many women that when they have been the victim of some sort of an assault or some sort of an attack that they aren't believed or excuses are made or no one's held accountable or the perpetrator basically just walks away. And that's part of our culture too, as there's no accountability for that kind of behavior in our society. Yeah, that's exactly right. The the accountability isn't there. And there's still even, you know, in the face of all those statistics, there is a real resistance to working with the effects of that on an individual basis. And there's too much of, well, I'm not that way, or I don't want to be blamed for what other, those are the bad men. I'm one of the good men. And it's like, if you are not a murderer or not a rapist, no one's saying that you are. However, you look like the people who are doing most of the raping and murdering. And so you've got to understand that and act accordingly. Number one, what are you doing to counteract that? And then uh, amongst other men. And then number two, are there things you can take responsibility for and act differently, both in your own sort of introspective internal world, as well as the ways in which you behave outwardly, uh, in particularly around women who have every right to be a little bit nervous and scared when they're first meeting you or they're around you uh, in some kind of a public or private setting. Yeah, I think a part of that that for me that I was thinking about this week is you and I have talked before on the podcast about how we didn't really get any consent-based education around sex when we were growing up. But I do think, you know, a part of that I've come to realize only recently in my own experience is that consent is also can also be a complicated thing. And in a threatening situation, sometimes people describe being put in sort of a fight or flight state right? if there's some sort of fear. And one of the things that we're realizing now is that the fight or flight understanding is a fairly male-centric way of thinking about the different responses to being scared or having a fearful stimulus. That, in fact, there are other responses in addition to flight or fight. Uh, one of the things that also goes along with that is what is a freeze response, which is basically just a shutting down in the face of fear. That is certainly something that animals do as well as humans. If there's a something that's making them afraid, they might just freeze. But there's also another response to that, which is a fawn response, which is a response of trying to placate or or please or, you know, calm the the angry threat in a way that allows the danger to dissipate in some way. And I think understanding the freeze response and understanding the fawn response can lead to a more complicated understanding of what consent means in any sort of a a sexual relationship or encounter between men and women. Because it could be that if a woman perceives you as being a threat, she might go into a freeze response, which would mean she wouldn't necessarily be vocal in saying no 
she doesn't right. want to have sex with you. And, and she might also go into a fun response, which is trying to, trying to placate you or tell you what you want to hear, even though that's not what she wants because she's afraid. There was an article that was published in the New Yorker a, a few years ago where a woman was writing about a sexual experience that was unpleasant. And it, it sparked a lot of conversation at the time around what really is consent. And if, if a woman feels a fear that if she says no, she might be harmed in some way, then she may be saying yes, quote unquote, but also not really be wanting that to happen, but just not feeling like she's free to say no without the right. possibility of of some sort of violence or threat. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I'm doing the best job of explaining all that, but I it's a much more complicated endeavor when you understand that there can be an implied threat of violence in any interactions. And if you're not aware of that and taking it into account, you can't always properly read whatever the situation is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, when you were talking about that with the fight, flight, fawn or freeze response, the a story from mm -hmm. my life that that came to mind really quickly was a time several years ago, I was on a jury for a child molestation case. Mm. And without getting into all of the details of the case, basically a a young teenage girl was assaulted by her mother's boyfriend and we had to decide in the jury whether or not that had happened and what the appropriate you know consequence was and we were in deliberation for four days because there were a variety of opinions about what had happened in that case and we ultimately were a hung jury because one of the men in the jury with me was completely convinced of the man's innocence because the girl did not say no to the attack and fight it off or run away. She had more of a fawning response, which, as was explained by a social worker in who gave testimony, is a perfectly common response, especially for children when they're being assaulted. But right. in this man's eyes, because she did not say no and fight off her attacker and then immediately report it to her mother, she waited a, about a week before she reported it, that was evidence of the man's innocence. And so, again, because the, the victim, the, the young girl, did not respond the way he would have, right, right. that was evidence in his mind that it must not have happened. He was yeah. completely unable to perceive that another person would behave differently than he would. And right. much right. to my chagrin, table slamming and yelling in that jury, we ended up a hung jury in part because he and another couple of people just could not put themselves in her shoes yeah. to see things from her perspective. Oh, it was it's awful. It was awful. That man, by the way, was the head of school of a private Christian school in the <laughs> Atlanta area. Oh, and Jesus. So, All right. Yeah. I was just like, you're a professional educator, and still this is the perspective you're bringing to this case. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, not the perspective of prote protecting children, but no. the perspective of no. protecting those who assault children. Yeah. Obviously, that situation was horrible for this victim and also that to have to argue about that with him and not have him budge on it, but also just that that is an all too common experience for when these kinds of cases go to court or when they're tried in the court of public opinion, men feel free to weigh in and say, doesn't seem like this person 
responded in the way that I would have responded or a way that makes sense to me. So therefore, this must not have happened. That's just all too common and also erroneous way to think about it. Yes. It was just really sad that 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 case then had to be retried and that poor young woman girl had to again give her testimony in another trial because that man and a couple others just saw things differently. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, watching a TikTok video of a journalist named uh, Melanie Hamlet that I like, and she's a freelance journalist who writes for Washington Post and The Guardian and Daily Beast and you know a few different others. And she's like a outdoors woman, and she was you know, a hiker and camper and all that kind of thing. And she was talking about, listen, I've done solo hiking and solo camping out in the woods all by myself. And I am not afraid of a, a, a snake or a bear. I'm afraid of the solo man hiker or camper who's going to come up and harass me or potentially attack me. Right, um, right. I'm way more afraid of that, of a bear. She was talking about how when she was hiking the Appalachian Trail, she discovered that there's like a whisper group. There's a Facebook group for women only who are hiking the Appalachian Trail where they say like, hey, this guy's in this area, keep an eye out for him. And they are informing each other through this, you know, women's only Facebook group to be on the lookout for these guys. And it's like the fact that that even has to exist. (laughs) Right, right, right. Again, uh, if we haven't already made our case, you know, to the guys out there, the women are more scared of you than you realize. And they have good reason to feel that way. There's just yet another example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the number of ways that that women have come up with and have created to protect themselves and to protect each other and to provide for ways that they can keep themselves safe in the face of this reality is amazing. But it shouldn't have to be that way. Yeah. And I think part of what we want to say in this conversation is what, as much as we want to try to make it clear to men that this is the situation that women do perceive us, you know, men in particular, white men, perhaps especially, although there's a whole other world in thinking about black men and other men of color and how they have a particular kind of fear that is provoked by their presence. You know, it is reasonable for women and non binary folks and trans folks to be afraid of men. And so I think that's part of what we're trying to say. And also that that shouldn't be that way. I mean, that, that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people shouldn't have to be afraid and they should be able to go hike the Appalachian trail and not have to be afraid of being attacked by some random man. They should be able to go for a walk at night in their own neighborhood and not be afraid of being attacked. They should be able to go on a date with somebody that they met online, even if they don't know who that person is, and not be afraid of being attacked or or harassed. And that's how it should be, but that's not how it is. Now, I've had multiple conversations with women that I'm friends with and or that I've been dating over the years about the fact that I really love to go and walk at night. Like That's one of my favorite ways to just have like my own quiet reflection time is like, I'll just go out and walk around outside at midnight, one, two in the morning, whenever, you know? Um, and I've done that my whole life. I started doing that when I was in, when I was in high school. Um, and I've done it in every neighborhood I've ever lived in and in every state and every city that I've ever lived in. I've just gone out at night 
walking by myself, you know, and I've never been afraid, you know, I've never, never once have I thought like, yeah, I shouldn't do that or that's dangerous or whatever. I've just, I've always done it. No women that I know have ever done that, you know, and they, Mm -hmm. and they not only have they never done it, they can't even conceive of what the world would be like in which they could do that. You know, it's like, they don't, they can't even fathom what it would be like to just be able to go out and go walking at two in the morning by themselves, even in their own neighborhood. Right. So I, I just think like that to me is an example of like something I take for granted that is just like, yeah, yeah. I can just go walking whenever I want and I, I'm not afraid. But that's a, a privilege, an enormous privilege that I have that most other people don't have. And it's uh, easy to overlook that if you're not listening and talking to people about their experiences. Right. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad you brought up, you know, sexual orientation and gender identification and ethnicity because those those factors overlap as well and intersect with the ways in which men sort of wield power and, and intimidation. It is experienced differently by, you know, women who are in minority groups or by those who uh, identify as non-binary or trans or and also with sexual orientation. So I don't know that we're fully qualified to dive into all of the ways that those do intersect. We're really trying to have conversations openly, honestly, about our experience as cisgender, heterosexual, white, middle-class men, but also want to acknowledge that we don't want to catch ourselves mansplaining the experience of others or anything else, but also want to make sure we're giving voice to acknowledge that, um, there are those out there who experience things much differently than ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we certainly aren't, don't want to be claiming to speak for anybody else. We're not uh, saying that we're trying to speak for women or to women's experience. What we're trying to do is say, these are things that we have come to understand from listening to people in our lives who have a different experience from our own. And we're trying to share those things that we have learned with other men what I liked about what you said, especially that I don't think we've touched on, is the idea that it may be that men who are listening to this conversation feel like the fact that they may be perceived as being a threat is a negative thing that is bad for them. <laughs> it's it's bad for them to be perceived as being a threat. But I do think we also should say that that violence and threat from men is also a benefit to men. That is a way that the patriarchy and male dominance is enforced in the society is through the creation of that fear and is through the creation of that threat of violence that exists. And so it's not as if this is an accidental fear or an accidental sense of unease on the part of women around men. This is something that is intentional and is used by the patriarchal system to uphold the dominance of men over women. So it benefits us, whether we like it or not, to to have other people be afraid of us because it means they won't compete with us as much and we can be more likely to be successful and we can take advantage of that fear to advance ourselves and our our agenda and our interests. And so as much as we may feel like we didn't ask for this or we didn't create this system, we are still the beneficiaries of that fear, even if we are not a part of of creating it or feel like it's not our fault. Right, right. Yeah, and that happens in a lot of ways that are 
subtle and have nothing to do with like physical violence, right? So I was talking with a friend of mine, you know, asking her about some of her experiences being sort of intimidated by or overrun by or afraid of men in her life. And, you know, one of the thing, one of the stories she shared with me was when she was in a, a professional setting as a businesswoman and she was basically making a pitch to some folks to, to get their business. And one of the men was sort of being overly questioning of her credentials and some of her ideas and was kind of like, holding her feet to the fire in a way that wasn't really appropriate for the setting. And she didn't quite know how to respond. It really took her off guard. And the other man on the call who happened to be his boss called him out for being inappropriately harsh with, with her. And she was like, that is the first time that I ever saw another man held accountable for being overly aggressive in a way that was clearly inappropriate. Yeah. That has happened at other times. And the other men was sort of like, didn't either, either didn't pick it up or did pick it up, but didn't say anything. And it was like, she's like, I'll never forget that. It was the first time it happened. And it's the only time it's happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it meant a lot in that particular case. And that man could only do it because, well, maybe not could only do it, but was more easily able to do it because he was in a position of professional power over the other man and was, right, was, right. His, was his boss. You know, she was saying one of her asks for, for men in this conversation would be, you know, speak up when you see men behaving badly. Uh, when you see a guy being overly aggressive at a bar or too forward or making making people uh, uncomfortable getting too close in a woman's space or whatever, like speak up and say something. Don't make it have to be women have to always be the ones to, again, back to your fight, flight, fawn or freeze response. Um, Don't make it always up to women to have to sort of like push back against the men. When we see men behaving badly, you know, stand up and say something. Yeah. I, I think that is absolutely a legitimate ask I feel like that's getting into a topic that, you know, we really should have a conversation about it. And I don't know if we have time to have a conversation about it now, but I, because I really have, I have some strong feelings about that or some questions about it because I feel like I do think that's a reasonable ask, but I also think like that's never happened to me before, you know, like I've never, I'm just not around men behaving badly. So it's like, I'm, you know, I've been on this planet for 50 years and I've probably only been in that situation twice. You know, So it's like, there's a whole hell of a lot of men out there behaving badly and somebody needs to tell them to shut the fuck up, but it ain't going to be me because I'm never there. Like I, I don't, you know, it's like, I think that women think when a man's treating me badly, there's other men standing around, not doing anything. And I think that's absolutely true, but it's never me. <laughs> you know, Like, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what to, you know, say about that, but it's like, I'm not in those situations. I don't have those. I did. I don't honestly can't think of a single time when I felt like I should have said something or I should have stood up or I should have, you know, stopped this from doing or whatever. And I didn't do it, you know, and I, some of that is maybe just, I'm just unaware, but I'm a pretty aware person. I just think like, I'm not around those guys that behave like that. Like, I just don't, those people are not my friends. Uh, when I see those guys in a bar that are acting, you know, like assholes, I just go to a different bar because I'm like, I don't want to be around these guys any more than these women do, you know? So it's just like, I'm not, I, I don't, 
experienced those situations where I could intervene. Okay, but wait, I, maybe you were being hypothetical, but didn't you just say when I'm at a bar and I see guys misbehaving, I just leave? <laughs> Is that what you meant? Were you just yeah, being I, hypothetical, like you're not going to those bars or? Well, both. I, I didn't mean like if I see them, you know, harassing a woman or something, I would yeah. I would like to think that I would intervene. But I meant you mean just, just like, being, like r- being rowdy in a way that might lead to behaving badly. You're just, yeah, just trying I mean, to place your I don't I don't want to be in those places and, you know, myself. Yeah. And if yeah, I, yeah, and yeah. if I am, you know, uh, like, again, there's a difference between seeing someone being harassed or just seeing like guys getting drunk and being annoying. And it's like, okay, well, I don't want to be annoyed either. Whether it's a professional setting, a business, I mean, I'm, you know, business settings or other kinds of things. I think both are probably true. If I had to hazard a guess to explain your experience there, it would be on one level, I know the people that you spend a lot of your time with and you, you have probably chosen well to in general, hang out with people who are, you know, kind, compassionate and aware and trying to do their best in this world, men and women. And then I would also argue that there were probably ways over, over the history of your time on earth that you have been sort of like blissfully ignorant, ignorantly unaware of the ways in which you yourself or other men were sort of either, you know, directly benefiting from or sort of like intimidating or, benefiting from or even, you know, uh, doing harm in some way with, with their male privilege and power. I mean, I think towards back about a lot of the meetings that I used to be in, uh, in in an education setting setting in my old job where, you know, there were men and women in the room and I'll be honest, I wasn't really picking up on any gender advantages that I had or, or, or racial advantages as a white man, uh, wasn't picking up on that. I wasn't thinking I was doing anything untowards towards anyone, male or female, and wasn't picking up on that from other people. But then I would have these conversations with my female colleagues where they would experience, um, my comments were disregarded or, well, when I started talking you know, so-and-so started talking over me and nobody said anything. And that happens all the time. And I, I will say like, I, that's something I continue to work on. Like I can definitely be an interrupter. Um, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't know if I do that more with women than I do with men. I feel like I'm an equal opportunity interrupter, but sure. I might do it more with them. I'm open to the possibility that I do it more with women. It's it, it wouldn't surprise me if I got that feedback, it wouldn't surprise me. It was true. So I think there are those sort of subtle ways that again, aren't necessarily like blatant physical violence, but ways in which men sort of like utilize that, that power and privilege in, uh, you know, more subtle ways, but that with the, the the total effect of that in a woman's experience is, you know, profoundly threatening, disheartening, and frustrating on a you know on a on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I'm not. I don't discount anybody's experience of that, and I think those things are very real and prevalent. And and ob- absolutely, there. Are, I'm sure time and time again there are things that are happening that are minimizing or 
silencing or um, that are experienced by people as being threatening that I'm just completely unaware of and uh, either that I'm doing or that other people are doing when I'm around and I just don't notice it or, or, you know, I'm not aware of what's happening or, or the experience of those people. Um, that is absolutely, I'm sure the case. Um, I just think that it, it is, it is, there's a sense in which the expectation that, you know, often gets named as sort of like, there's, where are these good men out there that are, you know, intervening or helping or supporting or where are the allies? Um, and I think the reality is like the crappy men hang out with other crappy men and the decent men hang out with other decent men. Yeah. And and certainly in like in, in voluntary social situations, that's almost certainly true. I think it's less true in professional situations. You know, I think there's a lot of things too that I've learned in some of my conversations with women recently about just how men are physically in ways that we don't necessarily think about. So like one woman was like, I don't want to get into an elevator with just another guy. Like I don't want to get into an enclosed steel box that is soundproofed with no windows with another man. And she was like, it, would it be that hard for men? If there's not anybody around to just say like, Hey, you go ahead and take this one. I'll take the next one. She was like, that sure. would mean a lot to me. Um, yeah. she was like, I'm looking, always looking at where men's hands are, you know, like, you know, keep your hands in, in, in my sight. So I know you're not a threat. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm out, uh, when I'm out walking and feeling like men are sort of walking a little bit too close to me or kind of catching up for me behind. And maybe that's just the pace they're walking at, but it makes me a little nervous. And so like, I think another thing we can do as men is sort of be cognizant of the, the power and fear that just our physical presence projects. And again, I'm talking to nice guys here who aren't meaning to do that, but because the asshole guys are doing it, and we look like the asshole guys because we're men. Yeah. We are sort of caught up in that. And so it is, you know, kind, considerate and a way of sort of diffusing some of this. If we can be aware of the ways in just our physical presence uh, for a lot of women uh, legitimately causes their anxiety level or uh, fear awareness to go up. Yeah. Um, and, and also being proactive in, hey, can I walk you to your car? Again, I've heard this from a couple of different women this week where they were like, you know, there are plenty of times when I wish somebody would have said that and instead, but I didn't feel comfortable asking for it. And so I sort of endured this fearful walk to my car after an event or late at night at work or that kind of thing. And so yeah, again, I yeah. think being proactive would be more welcomed than maybe we re would realize. And perhaps sometimes it might feel a little off-putting or a little presumptive in ways that some people may be offended by. If that happens, I, I will certainly respectfully apologize and back off. But it sounds like for a lot of women that actually would be welcomed. And again, I'm only reporting what was told to me. I if, if, Sure. If I spoke to the minority who are into that and the majority of women come forward <laughs> and say, Jim, this is not what yeah. we want as women, then I will back off of that. Well, yeah, women are not monolithic. So obviously they can lots lots of different things but but the gist of that was it was in it was enlightening for me to be like oh the ways i move my body in in space in in public and private settings does impact women in ways i am completely have been completely unaware of and so i'm going to try to be a little bit more aware of of how i you know present myself physically around 
women in particular. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I've, I feel like that is something I'm also have become aware of throughout my life and, and am more aware of it now than I ever have been before. I certainly think about that a lot when I am walking at night. If I, if I'm walking at a pace that feels like I'm sort of like coming up quickly on an, on a woman who's walking, I am aware that that can be perceived as threatening. And so, you know, I will slow down or I'll cross the street or I'll try to, you know, try to create some distance in a way that makes her feel safe. When in reality, I'm just trying to go for a walk and this just happens to be the pace I'm walking at. Yeah. But I think that awareness, I certainly don't feel that as a burden. That's I'm perfectly happy to to do that. You know, I, I definitely struggle with the sense that like I'm a big guy and this is my body, you know? So it's like, I don't like, uh, this is just the size I am. And if that is scary to people, like, like I, I can't make it not be that way, you know? And that's, I have been in situations where I'm, I'm trying so hard to physically make myself smaller and like make my shoulders smaller and scrunch up so that I seem less threatening. And then when I'm, when I get done, I'm like my whole body fucking aches because I'm like, I was trying so hard to make myself smaller, but it's like, yeah, I don't know that I should necessarily, you know, feel like I have to not be in my own body. You know, like I feel like I can, I'm just, this is the size I am. This is what I look like. But also at the same time, being aware that of the impact that that can have on other people and not just sort of being like running roughshod through life and being like, I can do whatever I want and stand wherever I want and, you know, sit wherever I want and everyone else just has to get out of my way. That's not my attitude at all. So it's, it's about, there's a balance in my mind between being aware of, of how my presence can feel to others, but also being like, well, this is just who I am. This is what I look like. This is what my body is. And I can't really change that. I'm average height and average weight. So, and also I think bliss was blissfully unaware of the ways in which just as a, as a man, I, I have a certain power and privilege. We got issues that we're trying to deal with, some of which we opened this segment by talking about where it really yeah, goes yeah. to the extreme levels of violence. And I think in terms of preventing the creation of more of those, when we're talking about, you know, social emotional learning with boys, um, I, I really think the number one thing that we've got to be doing more and more of is encouraging boys to be aware of their feelings, to be feeling their feelings and to, you know, create spaces for boys to be emotionally intelligent young men who grow up to being aware, self-aware and self-compassionate and compassionate men, because we have raised generation after generation of men who struggle with that. And I'm convinced that's a big part of why men are are so prone to to violence and intimidation and being overly aggressive and intimidating in our culture is that we have succumbed so poorly to those patriarchal forces that call upon us to raise boys to be numb to their feelings and to step into ways that we now sort of talk about being sort of toxic aspects of masculinity around violence and the acquisition of of power in the pursuit of ostensibly good goals of being, you know, good providers and good protectors. We have found like maladaptive ways of teaching men to be good protectors and good providers. 
as we have sort of created a consumer culture of fear and gun violence, the noble goal of protection, which is what, you know, we, we train our men to be like good protectors and providers in their home. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but the manner in which we are. I, th- I think it's a bad thing, but that. I. OK, well, we should talk about but that. I, then. But you just said you don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. So. Not necessarily a bad thing. Yes. If you I, if I you want to protect your family and provide that. for them, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes. But the manner in which many of us go about doing that. That is exceedingly bad. And I think men's inability to connect emotionally with themselves and with those around them leads to it be, to become easier to behave badly or behave violently in ways that are detrimental to themselves and to the to the women around them and frankly, the men as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very hard to course correct for that with adult men who are in that place. Um, Once men, if they hit a rock bottom or something happens that causes them to become introspective and examine that, you got to get in there quick and work on it. But I think it's, it's more about how we raise kids, how we raise boys in particular. Yeah. So that we avoid that moving forward. All right. Well, we should go ahead and move things on to the final uh, segment of our show, which is picking teams, where we uh, choose our teams from a predetermined topic. And the subject for picking teams for today is best sitcom moms of the 20th century. Jim, you want heads or tails? I think I'm going with heads today. All right. Heads it is. You get the first pick. Yes, finally. So I came up with a pretty good list of 20th century sitcom moms. And the ones that sort of rose to the top were the ones that were sort of like groundbreaking against all odds. My sort of, you know, category for for best was not only like a good mom, a funny mom, but also the 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 X factor was, you know, kind of the social circumstances under which they culturally were significant moms, culturally significant moms. <laughs> yes. All right. So, I hear you saying that there's not a clear number one for you that you yeah, didn't feel like yeah, there was like one yeah. mom who was clearly outstanding to take the first pick, you know? No. So, so there wasn't, uh, there were a lot of good ones. And, uh, but the, so I'm taking as my first pick, the one that was most significant in my actual um, you know, childhood. Right. So right. like in my formative years, uh, the best mom, and that was Claire Huxtable. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so Felicia Rashad's portrayal of Claire Huxtable in the Cosby show in the eighties yeah. was just, um, for, for however many years that show was on was just a, a weekly part of my life. And yeah, for her to pull that off in the 80s as a black woman, you know, as the matriarch of a black family at, at eight o'clock on Thursday night uh, to the entire nation is is astoundingly impressive. She sort of portrayed this super woman who was a professional. She was an attorney. She was an amazing, loving and caring mom. She was a great, hilarious foil to the comedy of Bill Cosby and did that all in an era where it was still 
a little strange for there to be black people on TV. Like, yes, there have been black people on TV for decades, but for a black family to be the number one show for that period of time was, I think, unprecedented at that point. And she pulled that off with like humor and grace and class and and love. And she I she was America's mom in yeah, the 80s. Absolutely. And so again, for America's mom to be a black woman in that time period was just, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, having definitely. said that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Having said that. Having said all that. I just want to acknowledge <laughs> That Bill Cosby, it turns out, unbeknownst mm-hmm. to us at the time, yes, was doing some pretty shitty things uh, yes. with a large number of women, uh, yes. credibly accused, convicted, and yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's messy. And Felicia Rashad, the, the actress who portrayed Claire Huxtable, uh, pretty much stood by him in a lot of ways that are still my, continues from, to stick by him. Yes. From my point of view, problematic. So I just want to put that yes. out there. I'm talking about the character Claire Huxtable. Yes. Not necessarily the ensuing actions and words of the actress who portrayed her in more recent times. But yes. In that era, an unbelievably important character yeah, definitely. I mean, same. I think Claire Huxtable would would have been my number one pick as well. Oh, wow. Okay. I just, I loved her. She was incredibly smart, funny, loving, compassionate, tough, strong, supportive of her husband, supportive of her kids, but also could call them on their bullshit mm-hmm. and, uh, and relatable down to earth. So yeah, I, I think that was an incredible character incredible family that we all got to witness. And obviously it was all an act because behind the scenes, there was horrible nightmares happening behind the scenes. But, uh, but yeah. the, the show itself was uh, significant and, and yeah, also I just uh, loved Claire Huxtable. I'm going to go for my first pick to the one that most to me resonated as similar to my own real life mother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is uh, Maggie Seaver from Growing Pains. Ah, okay. Growing Pains was the show that was most most like my family mm-hmm. because the setup for the show was basically that the mom had stopped working to stay home with the kids. And now that the kids were a little older, the mom was going back to work. So the pilot episode is like mom's first day of mm-hmm. going back to work. Mm-hmm. And the dad on that show was a, like a therapist, a psychotherapist. And he, his office was in the house. <laughs> so he like, he like worked from home and saw his clients at home. And the mom went off to work at a, she, I think she was like a television reporter. That was the most similar to my family structure. Cause my dad was also a psychologist and my mom had stayed home with us. And then she went back to work. So that family just felt the most. It, it also was like the smart, nerdy sister and like the the brother who was like kind of a fuck up. So it was it it had a lot of of resonances for me with my life. So I liked Maggie Seaver's way of parenting, but also prioritizing her career at the same time. So shout out to her as a a great sitcom mom of my childhood. Yeah, that's a good one. That was one of my favorite shows growing up too. Uh, Joanna Kearns, just to shout out the actress who played 
Maggie Seaver was uh, did a great job. Yeah, the the family that was most like mine was Family Ties. Yeah, took place in Ohio, so it where did, I grew yeah. up, and it was like you know liberal kind of like emerging hippie mom and dad, which is kind of my parents, and yeah. you know a boy and two girls, which was our family set up, and uh, you know the, with the oldest brother sort of being the star of the show. And and from my point of view, I was the star of the show of our family. So it all sure, makes sense sure. to me. Yeah. I am not, however, picking Elise Keaton as, no? uh, as right. one of mine because I, I don't know. She was kind of a pushover <laughs> mom and I'm not really, imp- I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not really, you know, uh, she was not uh, a compelling reason for me to watch that show. Okay. So all right. yeah, I mean, fair enough. Hats off to Meredith Baxter Burney, who has mm-hmm. one of the best names for a great name, uh, yeah, 20th century mom actress. But no, I am not going with Elise Keaton. I'm going old school with my number two pick, and again, okay. sticking with my theme of like culturally relevant, culturally breakthrough moms. performances, <laughs> breakthrough, breakthrough moms. <laughs> Maybe the original breakthrough mom. And oh, you're, okay. you're you're better with entertainment history than I am, so you might disagree with this, but. I think the original breakthrough mom, I'm going with Lucille Ball in mm, I Love Lucy. Okay. All and right. a lot of people may not realize that she was a mom in that show. And it was extremely controversial. Number one, it was controversial because she and Desi Arnaz, who was who portrayed Ricky Ricardo on the I Love Lucy show, was, you know, Cuban American. So you have a right, right. you an, an interracial couple in the early 50s, being portrayed on television is a massive, massive culturally important thing. And then it seems like ridiculous in 2023 to think about this. But again, this was, you know, 70 years ago. It was a much different era. She got pregnant in real life at the beginning of of season two, and they had to figure out what to do about it. And the producers of the show just wanted to pretend that she wasn't pregnant. And to their credit, Desi Arnaz and Lucia Ball were like, no, we're going to talk about that on the show and it's going to become part of the show. And the notion that a woman would be pregnant on TV, which would be as a direct result of sex, which they can't be having, they slept in separate twin beds. (laughs) Yeah. How could they be, you know, nobody's actually having sex. Nobody's having sex. You know, an interracial couple that had sex and then produced a child, uh, was just crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, clearly, clearly on this for, from a breakthrough perspective, a worthy pick for sure. You know, that wasn't, that show really wasn't like a, uh, a family show right, um, right in terms of like it wasn't about we didn't get to see her as a mother that much on yeah. that show because it was really about this the couple it was not a family not, sitcom the way we think about the cosby show or growing pain right 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 for sure but that's sure. but yeah. i but your point yeah. is well taken about the significance of that of lucille ball and and of that event and of having adding in the child i think that's a great great pick I'm going to go for my next pick to I'm going a little bit unconventional. I like it in my next pick, which is I'm going to pick two for the price of one here. I'm going Kate and Allie. Oh, interesting. Did you ever watch That's Kate not where and I Allie? thought you were going. Sure, of course. Yeah. yeah. Kate and Allie was a great uh, two great comedians. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Susan St. James and Jane Curtin played two moms who got divorced and decided to move in together 
and raise their kids together as a one big family, yeah. which they clearly set it up that these are two straight women. <laughs> right. <laughs> that we right. make it very clear these women are not gay. Right. Uh, but but they were living together and raising their kids together. Another sort of groundbreaking show in that it it did in a way portray some aspects of a lesbian relationship, but avoided the uh, the stigmas of that by by trying to make it clear that this was a a purely domestic arrangement. So, but I, I love that show. I used to watch it every week, and it really made me laugh. And they were both great moms in the show. So I, I'm I'm really uh, was a fan of that one. Yeah, that's a little bit more of an obscure pick. I'm sure a lot of people do not remember that show or have never heard of it. But Jane Curtin is one of my all-time favorite comedians. So yeah, I love all the Saturday Night... Well, not all of them, but I love so many of the Saturday Night Live alums of which she is one. And so, Well, I didn't even know... At the time when I was watching Kate and Allie, I didn't know that Jane Curtin had been on Saturday Night Live. Mm. I, only, I only learned that after. So when I... Mm-hmm. Like went back and watched the early seasons of Saturday Night Live. I was like, oh, it's the, it's the one from Kate and Allie. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, that was a, that was eye opening for me. But yeah, it was uh, it was a great show. Yeah. Well, I am also taking for uh, this pick. Another um, really historically great female comedian. OK, great. It also might be going again. I'm not this is not a traditional family sitcom this was more of a workplace sitcom but all uh nevertheless uh this character becoming a mother was a culturally significant event in the 90s such that it was even mentioned by the vice president of the united states oh lord in a political speech and i'm talking about murphy brown murphy brown and uh you know candace bergen is the actress that played Murphy Brown. She was a mother as a part of of that show. And what was significant about it, for those who don't know, was, and again, we're talking like late 80s, early 90s, working mothers is becoming more of a thing. And then Murphy Brown took it a step further. And this is what she got called on the carpet for from, from Vice President Dan Quayle and his speech was, Murphy Brown took it to a step further by being a single working mother. And so, you know, the show basically had her, you know, getting pregnant, but then the father sort of being uninterested in being a part of that, she was not married. So you had an unmarried professional woman deciding to have and raise a baby on her own. And that was just outlandish Outlandish. for the time. And she was lampooned and the show was criticized and it sort of became an early talking point in the, in the culture wars of the 1992 presidential election between George Bush and, and Bill Clinton, that this show was evidence of, you know, the attack on men and it's saying that men are important and fathers aren't important. And right. Right. You know, how dare the, the cultural elites, of of Hollywood, you know, put this kind of filth out there for the to to influence the women of America. But um, yes. yeah, Murphy Brown and I and right. Candace Bergen also a great host of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, uh, and she a, was a great fantastic comedian. Host. She is really funny. Was a Murphy Brown also like a television news person? Yes, she was like a Barbara Walters news right, right. magazine like hard-hitting journalist sort of character. Okay, yeah, cuz I cuz Maggie Seaver was also like a news 
It just seems like the only job yeah. that women that they could think of <laughs> for women to do was like, well, there's women on the news. That's a yeah. That's Maggie a Seaver was she was like the the female co-anchor of the local yeah TV of like station, the local right? news. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all right, well, I'm gonna take. Uh, I mean, just to to continue with the theme of non-traditional family setups, I'm gonna go with Angela Robinson Bauer, the woman on Who's the Boss. That was a, another great show from the 80s. Tony Danza was the star. Right. But uh, Judith Light played Angela Bauer. The setup was that the Tony Danza character was a former professional athlete who moved out of the city, out into Connecticut, and became like the housekeeper for Judith Light's character, Angela Bauer, who was like a an ad executive. Yeah. And they both had one child and they all sort of became this family together. And it was not clear who the boss was because she was like the working woman who hired him to work for her. But he, by virtue of his male gender, should have been the boss. <laughs> right. Thus, it was a question in that time of who was the boss. That yes. was the that was the explanation. The name yeah. who's the boss is like one of the most condescending things yes. imaginable in retrospect. And, that and I don't know, as children, I don't we didn't question it. Like it's a ridiculous no, I was premise. Like, yeah, that's, I don't know if I want to know were the adults at that question were was there a podcast that was questioning the <laughs> ridiculousness of that premise or was we just all blindly accepting it i don't know angela was a great character who was willing to hire a former ball player with no skills to to be her live-in housekeeper <laughs> but, <laughs> but i also just a shout out to that show for being uh my the reason i loved it was because Alyssa milano was the uh sure, the daughter yeah. samantha yeah we all had a crush on my, Alyssa milano yeah, well, I've, other people may have had a crush with on her, but I was in love with her. You were in love with her. Wow. Crazy show, but another uh, strong female character and, and good mom, Angela Bauer. Nice. All right. Well, we should bring this episode to a close. We really should. Thanks for listening to Breaking Down Men with Jib and Jay. Please rate, review, subscribe. Is there anything you want to say before we close it out, Jim? Absolutely not. We'll talk to you next week. Jim and Jay are breaking down men.